Thinking about health care these days? We are not alone. It seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD, coming at you on AM860, the answer is at our website now, or are we the answer, Tampa.com, Joe? I can never remember. Well, it's actually, it's both. We are AM860, the answer, and the website is the answer, Tampa.com. So you got it right. All right. So uh, we got it right this time. And this is Talk Radio Interactive, and I'm at 877-969-8600, 877-969-8600. And I did get my 2,000 coffee mugs in, and they're beautiful. And at the after the break in the second half of the show, I'll ask a couple of questions, see if we can give a few of these away. We are an iHeart station, or at least we were. I think we still are. Right? Right. Well, Joe? you can hear us on the iHeart app, um, where you know that that's where you can hear uh, the programs online, or better yet, and much better yet, actually, you can download the station app, which you can find. You know, going to the Apple Store, going to you know on your Android, the uh, the uh, it's. AM 860, The Answer, you just download the app for free, and then you hit one button, and you can hear us in digital clarity all day long. Oh, boy. And if you go to drbillradiomd.com and click Listen Live, 9 to 10 a.m. every Sunday morning, you can listen to me anywhere in the world. How about That's that? East, Eastern Standard Time, by the way. And uh, some of the guys at the hospital say, you know, Doc, you're international now. Uh, I even had one of the, my Chinese salespeople asked me to give them a link to one of the shows that <laughs> we've been chatting on on uh, WhatsApp. And so apparently we're making our way into China now. We, we might even insinuate ourselves into the protest in Hong Kong, but I don't know, I might get arrested and locked up in a Chinese prison. But our hearts go out to the freedom-loving people of Hong Kong, and uh, I hope to God that the president can convince President Xi not to send troops into Hong Kong. That would be a bad thing, and, and I think that would hurt our, our trade uh, talks considerably. There'd be a lot of pressure from Congress on the president and from the population of the United States to get really tough with China, and uh, I would not blame anybody for feeling that way. We need to be supportive of freedom-loving people everywhere. And I won't say a whole lot more about that. And if you haven't been keeping up with it, every weekend for the past, I guess, almost two months now, the people of Hong Kong have been coming out in, in hundreds of thousands and protesting uh, laws that have been passed in Beijing that require extradition of certain felonies back into mainland China, where heretofore Hong Kong was a semi-autonomous uh, colony that had its own administrative and judicial system. And the people of Hong Kong also have what they consider a form of democracy, although the uh, city mayor or uh, governor or whatever you want to call that person is appointed by Beijing, by the Central Communist Party. And the people of Hong Kong are protesting because one of the agreements when Hong Kong was 
ceded back to China from Great Britain after their lease ran out was that they would be allowed to continue on as a semi-autonomous colony and uh, maintain some democratic uh, institutions. So they're fighting for their democracy and their freedom, and nobody wants to be locked up in a Chinese prison. They're they're, uh, not the nicest, and a two-man cell can turn into an eight-man cell, and your family has to pay for your food and your and your expenses, and uh, you know, it can get pretty rough. It, it, as one of our guides told us when we were over there, and I asked him why everybody was so nice, and I didn't see any crime, and there was really no discord. He said, "We're all afraid of going to prison here. They're terrible." So, we want to send our support and our love and our hearts out to the people of Hong Kong. Well, we dropped the boy off, our son, in Richmond, Virginia, to start a master's degree program in marketing at the Virginia Commonwealth University, which is a big campus. I must be 35,000 kids now. And we spent uh, the week in Richmond, Virginia, which uh, is a surprisingly beautiful and historical town. It was founded in 1730 and incorporated in the 1740s into a city, and it has been a continuous city ever since. It was even a city for the Powhatan tribe, and uh, as you know, uh, Pocahontas was of that tribe and uh, married one of the English settlers and actually went back to Great Britain and was treated as royalty in the court of King James back in the uh, early 1600s. Uh, fascinating story. Um, she, I think, had a child by the Englishman, and I think his name was John Smith, but I can't remember. And at any rate, there's so much history here, so much of our national history started right in Richmond, Virginia. It was also the capital of the Confederacy during our Civil War, and it has been burnt down twice, once during the Revolutionary War and once during the Civil War, in part by Southern troops who were retreating Confederate troops from the city, and they burnt down the warehouses with the cotton and the tobacco in it so that the Union troops would not have uh, that booty. They wouldn't be able to capture that. Well, it is a, a historic city, and there are tons of statues. There's even one street called Monument Avenue or Monument Boulevard, and it has statues of all the great Civil War generals. And it also has a statue of Arthur Ashe. Arthur Ashe was the uh, 1970s and 80s uh, internationally famous top-seeded black tennis player from Richmond, Virginia. He died of HIV at an early age, uh, but he is so beloved by the tennis community and by the city of Richmond that they put up a statue on Monument Avenue, Monument Boulevard of him, and fascinating that he has his back to, not unexpectedly either, he has his back to the Civil War generals, and instead of a saber uh, riding a horse, he's on a tennis court with a racket in his hand. It's, it's, it's something to see. And these are not small statues. Oh, my gosh, they're huge. We also got to tour the Capitol, which was designed by Thomas Jefferson, one of the oldest state capitals still standing. And the uh, governor's mansion, which is the oldest governor's mansion in the country, beautiful, just beautiful, unbelievable. Uh, I was I was really surprised. Now, this is a democratic city. It's predominantly black. The mayor is a black man named LeVar Stoney, 
and he's been mayor since 2016. And the city is is pretty liberal. Uh, there's a lot of bums on the street. The crime rate was extremely high, one of the most dangerous cities in the country, although they're uh, undergoing gentrification and the crime rate is starting to fall. But nevertheless, it still remains uh, a little bit of a dangerous city, certainly in the more um, heavily black wards uh, parts of the city. But that's changing as the uh, black community becomes more affluent. And actually, Richmond's black community has been relatively affluent uh, since the Civil War. It was at one point known as the Black Wall Street. Uh, one district of town where there was a good deal of, of black uh, commerce, the first black bank and the continuous black bank that's still in existence today was founded in Virginia by a black woman. And the first black female, the first female president of a bank was a black female from Virginia, from Richmond, Virginia, who started this bank. So a, a lot of uh, a lot of social progress there, a lot of uh, uh, entrepreneurship on the part of both black and white citizens of the city. Uh, it was the steel capital of the South and the industrial capital of the South prior to the Civil War because of the falls of the James River, which provided a lot of hydro, uh, not hydroelectric, but hydromechanical power. You know, they would turn their, their water mills and that would turn the that was the engine that would crank all of the mechanisms and they'd gear everything up and, and that's how they would run uh, uh, weaving mills for textiles and uh, run big machinery for making cannons and uh, railroad ties and different things. And so it was uh, a very strategically uh, located and still is uh, strategically located because now the railroads have taken over and there's still a big industry with the railroads. Uh, and it's also a crossroads with two two big interstates going through there. It's the state capital. So there's a lot going on there. And if you ever have a chance to visit, I would recommend it. Uh, we really enjoyed spending the week there. It was a lot of fun. I, I can't say that the food's that great, but uh, everything else about the city was wonderful. And we we would recommend it to all of you. Now, as for the boy, we got him settled, and I had a conversation with him yesterday. I told him that I wanted him to get a uh, security system for his house that he's running, brand-new house, nice area, nice house, uh, but still a heavily black area. And he's got three roommates a couple of them are female roommates, young women. And I was surprised that this this uh, brand center, which is the graduate program he is at, is so well known. I mean, one of his roommates is from Australia. Another one is from South Korea. Uh, there's kids from all over the world, and they only take 20 kids. And I think they have like 1,000 applicants or 2,000 applicants. So this is apparently a big deal in the marketing world. And we're, we're very proud of him, and we wish him well. But uh, I told him that he has got to get the security system, and I'll pay for it. So he called ADT and made an appointment. He had a kidney stone a couple of weeks ago that was blasted out with sound waves. And he wanted to know if he could start playing soccer again. I said, no, you have to wait a month. And he was all upset. And I said, well, you can spend the time getting a security system and taking care of business there, lad. And so he got right on it. Good boy. We love him. 
and we wish him the best. And we're just truly surprised at all that we saw in, in Richmond and all of the marvelous uh, assets that it has to offer. And very modern city, a uh, banking city, big banking industry there. Um, certainly there's some manufacturing, but not as much as there was in previous years as that has shifted out of American cities. Uh, a lot of that has gone further south or overseas. And uh, a, a thriving paper industry and computer industry and banking industry, state government. Uh, so there's, there's a lot there. And, oh, we did have the opportunity to go see the Edgar Allan Poe Museum. Edgar Allan Poe, although I think he was born in Baltimore, actually spent most of his career in Richmond editing uh, the uh, Southern Magazine, which was a literary magazine back then. And, and Poe is the first, as far as I know, American uh, literary figure who actually made a living, not a very good one, but made a living off of writing. And he is our best known author. And you might know Edgar Allan Poe from uh, The Murder in the Room Morgue and The Raven. And uh, his, his short stories and his poems have been made into over 300 movies worldwide. He is our best known literary figure even though he may not be our, our greatest literary figure, uh, he certainly is our best known. He died at an early age of unknown causes while on a trip to Philadelphia. But there's a nice little museum there, and uh, it, it's, it's fun to see. And there's some artifacts and relics from when he was a child. He was uh, orphaned early on as a toddler, and his family name was Poe, but he was raised by the Allens, so he took the the pen name Edgar Allan Poe, and uh, he married, but I don't think he had any children. Uh, just a, a real interesting guy who who spent his whole life in the literary world, working on literature, magazines, short stories, poetry, and it was unheard of in the 1840s and 1850s for someone to make a living off of writing poetry or even writing articles. If you were a newspaper editor you might make a living, but if you were one of the reporters, you probably had a second job and you did the newspaper work uh, as a sideline, um, sort of an advocation and not a true vocation uh, because you couldn't make a living doing it. So he brought something to our country and to the literary world, which heretofore had not existed. And that was the ability of a writer to make a living writing. And so we have great respect for Poe and for all of the works that he did and for his international fame and, and the great credits he brought to our country. What a great guy. Too bad that he died at an early age of an unknown cause. So we, we hope that his legacy will continue. And if you are in Richmond, make sure you go to the little museum. It's, it's nothing super duper, but it's certainly interesting and, uh, supportive of the community there and of our great poet and short story man, Edgar Allan Poe. So there we have Richmond, Virginia, and the story of the boy, and we got him up there, and he's all tucked in, and everything's doing well. Now, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, for the second part of the first half of the show, the uh, 
controversy that the president has started. Apparently, he mentioned that uh, he would like to buy Greenland. He heard that Denmark was having some financial trouble, and he wants to offer, I don't know if he's serious or not, but he wants to offer Denmark uh, or make an offer to Denmark to buy Greenland. Greenland is the world's largest island. It is probably one and a half times the size of Alaska. It is uh, predominantly covered by an ice cap, although that's melting along with all the other world ice caps. It's part of the North American landmass. Even though it's an island, it's on the tectonic plate, the North American tectonic plate. Uh, it's not large enough to be or separate enough to be considered a continent like Australia. Australia is on its own tectonic plate, has uh, a landmass probably four or five times the size of of Greenland. And so this is the world's largest island, uh, bigger than Alaska, full of natural resources like Alaska, uh, sparsely populated, maybe 20, 30,000 people live there. It's semi-autonomous, although it does belong to Denmark. It's a semi-autonomous uh, state, and they have their own government. And I, I would guess they have some representative representation in the Danish uh, parliament, but uh, largely they govern themselves. And so White House sources told uh, the Wall Street Journal that Trump asked his advisors uh, about the possibility of buying the island and because of Greenland's abundant resources and geopolitical importance, and, and of course, it would certainly make us unequivocally, unequivocal, am I pronouncing that right? Unequivocably, the third largest landmass country. We were the third largest, and then I think after China grabbed Tibet and incorporated that, they might have snuck by us by just a hair, but... Uh, for the main part, the United States is the third largest population in the world and the third largest or fourth largest landmass country in the world. And if we got Greenland, that would certainly make us, without a doubt, the third largest landmass country in the world. Uh, a lot of natural resources like, like Alaska, uh, it's sitting on tons of oil, there's minerals, there's mountains, it's uh, tectonically active, there are volcanoes. Uh, so, you know, there's going to be diamonds and gold and other things there as well. Now, the scuttlebutt around the White House is that Trump talked about it, but he wasn't serious. And he might have been joking. But by the way, he's got a trip scheduled to meet uh, the Danish hierarchy, and he's on his way to Denmark. Denmark, as you know, is the little peninsula jutting off of Germany and uh, sticks out into the North Sea and the uh, Baltic Sea. And we were there for five days. We stayed in, in Copenhagen, the capital. Nice country, nice people, had a good time, rode our bikes all over the place, bicycles that is. And so this would certainly put President Trump in the history books, if he were able to pull something off like this, although uh, the people in Greenland and the people in Denmark say that's ridiculous, and he really is insane if he thinks he's going to buy it. But remember, people said that Seward was insane when we bought Alaska in the late 1860s, early 1870s. We bought it from Russia. They called it Seward's, Follies, uh, Seward's Folly. 
Seward was uh, Secretary of State under, I think he was Secretary of State under Lincoln and Grant and, Ad, uh, and uh, President Johnson. Uh, I think he remained in government while Grant was in power. And the purchase was made through his office when he was secretary. And people thought it was craziness. Why are we buying this frozen piece of land that nobody lives in except for some Eskimos? Well, there you go. <laughs> now we've got this huge landmass state called Alaska that is full of natural resources. It's strategically important. It places us within stone's throw of the uh, eastern Russia, Siberian landmass. I mean, it's just 20 or 30 miles across the Bering Strait, and you're in Russia. Uh, so, by the way, um, I don't know if, if it was actually said that you can see Russia from Alaska, but uh, yes, on a clear day, you probably can if you get up high enough. <clears throat> and the Russian archipelago, the last island in the archipelago, is called Attu, A-T-T-U, and it's closer to Tokyo than it is to Seattle, Washington. So we've got a, a huge piece of land that is strategically located in the North Pacific, guarding the Bering Strait, watching over the Russians, uh, guarding the polar ice cap, and we also are deeply involved in Greenland. We have military bases and air bases there. Uh, we have a, a good relationship with Greenland and the Danes. And we have cooperated with the Danes and the people in Greenland for uh, decades. Now, the, the island's government said on its website that the country is not for sale. But ultimately, that would be the decision of the Danes. They're open for business, but not for sale. It's a rich and valuable resource. There are minerals, purest water, ice, fish, stocks, seafood, renewable energy, uh, new frontier for tourism, uh, oil, minerals. And the people of Greenland are happy to welcome Americans and anybody else to their land, uh, but they say they're not for sale. We shall see what the president can do with this. Now, some of the Danish politicians uh, poured scorn on the idea. It has to be an April Fool's joke, totally out of season, the former prime minister Rasmussen tweeted. And uh, another one of the uh, uh, politicos said it's, it's truly, if he is truly contemplating this, the, uh, the president, then this is final proof that he has gone mad. The thought of Denmark selling 50,000 citizens to the United States is completely ridiculous. <clears throat> I don't know. We'll see what happens. And then the former uh, ambassador to, to Denmark, Rufus Gifford, commented on Twitter saying, oh, dear Lord, as someone who loves Greenland, Greenland and has been there nine times to every corner and loves the people, this is a complete and total catastrophe. I don't know about that, but that's what he said. At any rate, we'll see if the president can pull something off. In 1946, the U.S. proposed to pay Denmark $100 million to buy Greenland after flirting with the idea of swapping land in Alaska for street strategic parts of the Arctic island. Uh, I don't think that went anywhere, <clears throat> but uh, it probably has popped back up off and on, and Trump being the guy who doesn't hold back, unlike many of our presidents who seem to be more reserved and don't tell you exactly what they're thinking and what's going on. Uh, you know everything that's happening with Trump. I mean, he's 
he's, uh, oh, I'm sorry, there's 56,000 people there, not 25,000, 26,000. But uh, Trump has uh, a way of making sure everybody knows what's going on and what he's thinking. And, you know, I love that about the guy. I think it's a, a wonderful asset to have as president. Uh, I, I can't think of anything more democratic than the president letting us know exactly what he's thinking and what's going on. And I will guarantee you that what he says and thinks uh, is no different than what a number of other presidents have thought but uh, and have even discussed in private or in secret, but have not been uh, willing to share with you and me the public. And that's why I will say once again, this guy works for us. We don't work for him. And this is what we want. We want a CEO who reports to us. I love it. I love it. And Trump has said that he sees purchasing Greenland as the equivalent to the 1867 acquisition of Alaska, which went through uh, Secretary Seward's office. Now, Alaska is 663,000 square miles. Greenland is 836,000 square miles. So it's, it's bigger than Alaska. And certainly the assets and resources that exist there are going to be on the same grand scale as what's in Alaska. I'd love to take a, a vacation to Greenland. Now, I know a lot of people have gone to Iceland, and that is apparently a growing tourist spot, relatively inexpensive, and Icelandic air is cheap, so it's a way to uh, get to see a little bit, a little taste of Europe and the northern climes. And, and by the way, I've spoken with people from Iceland, and they almost all speak English. I was surprised. Now, Iceland is uh, Scandinavian. The people are Scandinavians, but they are uh, not only tied closely to the European community, and I think, I think they're part of the European Union, but they're also very closely tied to North America and to the English-speaking Canadians and Americans. So it, it would be fascinating, and I would love to, and I've been telling the wife we should take one of the northern uh, cruises that goes from uh, the United States to Canada, to Greenland, to Iceland, to Norway and Sweden, and uh, ends up in Denmark. To me, that would be a very fascinating tour. I would love to see uh, the northern Atlantic. That, that would thrill me to no end, and I think that you would enjoy that too. Uh, we met a couple when we were on the Baltic cruise, and they were cruising. The cruise actually started in uh, Copenhagen, Denmark, and then it went through the Baltic with Estonia, Russia, Finland, Sweden, and then back down to uh, Copenhagen, Denmark. And then it took off again for, for Norway and Iceland and Greenland and northern Canada uh, or, or coastal Atlantic Canada, and then back down to the United States. It was a month-long tour. And we said, isn't it expensive? And they said, you know, it's cheaper to cruise than it is to live in a condo. And so we did the math. You know what? They're right. So if, if you are thinking of some way of expanding and extending your dollar and, and also enjoying and seeing the world, you can get some deals on these month, two, and three-month-long cruises that are unbelievable, and it's cheaper than renting a condominium or, or living in a, a, in a small home in a, in a town like St. Petersburg. And that, to me, is extremely fascinating. That's an idea that, that I have toyed with. 
But again, I would love to see the the Greenland and Iceland and uh, Northern Atlantic corridor. And we should, you know, Joe, we should plan a cruise, a Dr. Bill cruise, some somewhere sometime, and see if we could do that. Um, I'd, I'd, if, if, if schedule permitting, I'd be on that cruise. Yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. That's something to to think about. Um, well, we're getting close to the break here, and when I come back, we'll have a couple of questions. So don't go away. I'm going to talk about Antifa and fascism and what's going on out in Oregon with the with the uh, protest. And let's see if we can make some sense of this. We'll have a few questions to ask you, see if we can give away a couple of coffee mugs. Joe, I'm going to go fill my mug up, grab a cup of Joe Joe, and I'll be right back. I'm Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. Long by the old road. That's where this life of mine will pass away. AM 860, the answer. With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. Tens of thousands of people marching again in Hong Kong today. They're going from a park in the central part of the city for what organizers hope will be a peaceful demonstration for democracy following recent clashes with the police. One organizer says, quote, we hope we can show the world that Hong Kong people can be totally peaceful. His group has organized three massive marches since June. While those marches were peaceful, the movement has been increasingly marked by clashes between protesters and police. There was violent clashes between far-right and far-left protesters in Portland, Oregon yesterday, and both sides say they may return to the city at some point in the future. ISIS affiliate in Afghanistan claiming responsibility for the Kabul wedding blast last night that killed at least 63 people, including women and children. Another 182 people are in the hospital this morning. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727-384-6411. 727-384-6411. Hello, this is Dr. Bill Handelman for our good friends at Tampa Bay Imaging. TBI provides state-of-the-art MRI and CT scanning with the lowest radiation possible. Most insurance plans accepted and self-pay rates are very competitive. TBI is conveniently located in Tampa and St. Pete with evening and weekend appointments. So call TBI today or ask your doctor. In Tampa, call 813-386-3674. St. Pete, call 727-545-9674. Um, excuse me. Yes. In case you haven't noticed, advertising has changed over the years. What? It used to be customers could find or discover your business in just a handful of ways. Now, life is digital with so many more options and things you need to do. You need Salem Surround, a full-service digital agency with all your digital marketing under one roof. When a potential customer searches for your product, do they find your business or the competition? Is your business's contact information accurate and 
everywhere it should be to reach today's digital consumer. Does your website have all the right tools to turn visitors into leads? If not, we've got some solutions. Contact Salem Surround for a free evaluation of your digital presence and to help get your message in front of today's digital audience. We'll help deliver customers by putting your business message in the right place at the right time. Don't just invest in a marketing strategy. You need to surround your target audience. Learn more at surroundtampa.com. Surroundtampa.com. Connecting you with new customers. This week in the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy and ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom, Democrats accuse the president of racism. It has just gotten out of control. Join us for our program and sign up for our podcast at townhallreview.com. Listen to the Town Hall Weekend Review tonight at 11 on AM 860. The answer. Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast. Clouds and sunshine today with a shower or thunderstorm around later on with a high of 88. Partly cloudy tonight, low 73. Clouds and sunshine tomorrow with a shower or thunderstorm around and a high of 92. Tomorrow night's partly cloudy with a low of 76. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Alexandra Rapp for AM 860. The answer. You ought to carry That's where the cotton, that's where the cotton, and the corn and potatoes grow. That's where the birds, and I'm back. This is Dr. Bill, second half of the show. Welcome back, everybody. A little bit of Ray Charles and carry me back to old Virginia. You might remember that song from way back when. I don't know if that's the state song of Virginia now or not. But uh, fascinating. He says, take me back to where the cotton's tall and the tobacco's ripe and everything's good. I don't think they grow a whole lot of cotton anymore in in Virginia, but I don't know. They may still. Uh, There's still a lot of farmland there. We dropped the sun off there, and that's why we've been talking about Virginia and Richmond, Virginia. Beautiful city. Historical. Gorgeous. Well, I want to shift gears, uh, you guys, because of all this Antifa stuff that's going on out in Oregon. Now, uh, apparently Portland, I believe it's Portland, has become ground zero for Antifa. And for those of you who don't know what Antifa is, I'm going to tell you. Antifa is a movement composed of left-wing, autonomous, militant, anti-fascist groups and individuals in the United States. And actually, it started in Europe uh, in reaction to the fascist movement in the 1920s and 30s. And uh, it is and has been uh, predominantly composed of communists, socialists, anarchists, and ultra-liberals, social democrats. And uh, this was one of the things that the fascists crushed once they came into power. Now, the, the, the... problem is that this has become uh, a violent movement. Uh, they're beating up conservatives and uh, right-wingers. They're uh, setting fires and breaking windows and destroying things. And the president has said that he's considering declaring it a terrorist group. Why would you declare uh, a bunch of young people who are protesting, because we've had this in the United States since the get-go, uh, why would you declare them a terrorist group? Okay, 
Well, first of all, they hide their faces. They wear masks and uh, sunglasses so that you don't know who they are. Uh, they are semi-autonomous like terrorist cells are, like the uh, uh, Islamic fundamentalist movement has. Uh, and we've seen that with the, with the uh, Islamic radicals, that they have terrorist cells that are semi-autonomous. Uh, they can communicate with each other uh, over the Internet, just like the terrorist groups do, and teach each other things. Uh, they're uh, uh, violent, they're threatening, and uh, they're on the far left, and they have no problem with, with, with attacking people and attacking uh, property. They're anti-capitalist. And so... This is uh, the exact definition of what terrorist groups are. They're anti our way of life. And, and the president is certainly within his, his, uh, his, his bounds to consider and, and, in my opinion, to declare this a terrorist group, which would then make it illegal and we could go after these people. Of course, they have a lot of support. I mean, we've got the, the uh, four young freshman Congress people Congresswomen who are uh, openly socialist communists and uh, would love to have a single party system and take over. And this is exactly what Antifa wants. They want to kill all the capitalists and kill all the conservatives and get rid of us. And uh, not to say that, that fascism is any better because fascism wanted to get rid of all the left wingers and have a one party state. So you got You've got two very polar groups here. You've got Antifa, which views everybody who is on the right as fascist. And then you've got the far right fascist people who view everybody in Antifa as communist, uh, communist, anarchist, socialist. And this is pretty much what was going on in Germany and in Italy in the 1920s and 30s. And as I talked about a few weeks ago, uh, one of the first things that happened when this kind of uh, uh, conflict occurred, uh, arose between these groups, was that the democratically elected government in, in Germany, the Weimar Republic, started to uh, crack down on gun ownership because they felt that the guns would fall into the hands of the of the communists and the fascists, which would further uh, foment revolution within Germany, which was having a hard time in post-World War I uh, era because of their financial straits and their political upheavals after losing World War I. And so we have a situation where they started cracking down on gun control and gun ownership, and they uh, tightened up on gun registration. And then when the fascists got in in the 1930s under Hitler, they cracked down even more. And basically, they disarmed the population. And Hitler commented that you can't control, you cannot con control a country until you disarm it. And so they were disarmed. So we've got these two groups that are setting the stage for more fuel for the uh, left wing to cry for tighter gun control. And uh, this is this is not a good thing. I think that, as I have said before, that we can certainly uh, increase our vigilance in screening people as they come in and apply for 
uh, a, a gun or a, uh, sign up. Uh, you have to register with the with the gun dealers, the salespeople, um, and you have to have a background check. But that background check, uh, the data comes back to the, the the gun dealer. It does not stay with any government agency, and it can only be retrieved with uh, a court order, a subpoena, or uh, a search warrant if there is a suspicion that you and your gun have been involved in a crime. But certainly we can crack down on people who are uh, mentally ill, uh, who are antisocial, uh, we can certainly crack down on giving these people guns and allowing gun ownership, but we do not want to take away the right of any citizen who has a legitimate uh, right to own a pistol or a rifle or even a quote-unquote assault weapon, is, which is just a semi-automatic rifle with a, a different stock on it and a bigger clip. Uh, you, you know, it just doesn't make any sense to take that right away from from us, and we have to fight that in order to make sure that we do not deteriorate into either a fascist state or a communist state where you have a one-party system. Basically, they're similar in many ways. Uh, fascism, which most people really don't know much about, is uh, a political philosophy in which there's a right-wing, authoritarian, ultra-nationalistic government in power with a dictator or, or dictatorial power at the head, there's forcible suppression of the opposition and regimentation of the society and the economy. That doesn't mean that the government owns private industry, but it does give the nod to what industries will be allowed. And uh, there's certainly a lot of cronyism in the fascist state between private enterprise and the government. Now, you may say, well, we have that already here. Yes and no. I mean, we have government contracts that foster certain industries. Certainly the military industry and the military hardware industry is driven largely by government contracts. And uh, as President Eisenhower said, beware the, uh, the military-industrial complex, the relationship between our military and those manufacturers who are making arms and weapons for the military, and we have to continually uproot any, any uh, collusion that results in corruption between the government and the industrial complexes that the companies that make military weapons and have military contracts. But that's true in any country. You're going to have that anytime you have huge contracts between the government and private industry, you're going to have people who are trying to take advantage of the situation. And we just have to be diligent and, and continue to monitor that. And that's why we have a Congress. That's why we have a court system. That's why we have a top cop. That's why we have uh, an executive branch. So we need to stay on top of that. And that doesn't mean that we're a fascist state. We have a two-party or three or four party system. You can have as many parties in the United States as you want. It has fallen into a two party system pretty much. We've had a few eras during our existence when we had a three party or four party system, but largely we've remained a two party system. 
uh, and the conservatives and the liberals have switched sides off and on over the over the decades that our country has been in existence. Well, what fostered fascism? How did this come about in the European countries in the 1920s and 30s? And was it uh, was it here too? Yeah, it was. And how did Antifa start? Well, Antifa started when fascism started in Europe, and the you may not know this, but the fascists and the communists in Italy and in Germany were actually fighting each other in the streets. There was a, a quasi-civil war going on between these two groups. And, of course, the fascists won in Italy and in Germany and in some of the other European countries. Certainly in Spain they won. Uh, the Franco and the fascists defeated the communists. Uh, so we had a, a severe reaction to these two diametrically opposed philosophies, neither of which the United States adopted or accepted, nor do we want, nor do we want. <clears throat> now, Antifa represents the communist side of the equation here. And so they have to be brought in, into, under control. They have to be brought into tow and I think the president should declare this as uh, um, a terrorist group. We need to end the uh, small group of, of radicals who are fomenting communism, radical communism, and uh, violence against the rest of us and against those of us who are uh, private industry people. I'm in private industry. I own my own business. You guys know that. I'm a doctor. I have a private practice. Now, certainly the independent practitioner is, is a, uh, a dying industry. It's, it's fast morphing into big clinics and HMOs and hospital-owned physician groups. But nevertheless, Dr. Bill is still just a little old private enterprise guy. I'm, I'm a private business. And I think that uh, this has brought some, some uh, great and good assets to our country. Uh, it, it brings innovation when we allow small business to, to uh, thrive. It brings more jobs because small businesses are generally more productive and more uh, profitable than, than larger companies because there's, there's less bureaucracy. Uh, there's faster decisions that are made so I don't have to go through a corporate board or committees. Uh, if I think that we need a new piece of equipment and I can convince the wife, her highness, that it will make the, the practice money, then we'll go buy it and we'll get it and we'll do it. And so this drives not only the medical industry, but also the medical hardware industry. It drives the, uh, the drugs and the pharmaceutical industry. It, it drives the nursing industry because we can implement uh, new nursing procedures. It, it drives new, new techniques, even things like using super glue on, on uh, cuts and wounds. Uh, that, that has been driven largely by little practices like mine who have tried different things that were a little bit out of the box, but actually worked. And now you can buy this stuff over the counter at the, at the grocery store. You can buy these, these uh, uh, super glues that you can put on your cuts, and, and they call it some kind of uh, uh, bandage, that uh, plastic bandage or whatever that is actually uh, a mild form of super glue. 
So there's a lot to maintaining economic independence. And as my friend Al says, free enterprise and freedom are interlocked and they're, you, you just, you cannot separate them. They're, they're uh, unrecognizable apart from each other, that they are necessary. And I think the founding fathers felt the same way. I, certainly Hamilton uh, felt this way, and he is the primary author of our Constitution, along with Madison. And he's the genius boy of the of the founding fathers, and he set the stage for what we are today. He would come back and recognize this and say, "Yeah, this is exactly what I had in mind. What you have developed into as a country." And Jefferson would be completely lost. He would not recognize this. He would have said, "What happened to my dream of the of the small farmer?" Well. That went the way of of the plow, by the way, uh, President Jefferson, so I'm sorry for you. But at any rate, our freedoms, our way of life, our democracy, our our Bill of Rights, all of these things are integrally integrated with the whole concept and the whole institution of free enterprise. Without that, we're not going to exist as a free people. And you can see this, and I talked about what's going on in Hong Kong earlier in the show. And, you know, in Hong Kong, it's a free enterprise colony. I mean, it was the the first free enterprise colony of China after Mao took over and the communists took over. Now the communists have morphed into more of a free enterprise uh, political system, even though they still have ownership and partial ownership in all of the major industries in China. There is private ownership, and you can go start a business if you want. There's probably more hoops you have to jump through. But in Hong Kong, under Great Britain, free enterprise was and is the mantra, and it is one of the economic capitals of the world. This little island colony has been driving industry and enterprise throughout the world for the past 100 years. That's pretty remarkable for a little island colony, a little island nation. I mean, it's, you know, the size of San Francisco or the, the San Francisco Bay Area. I mean, it, there's, it, it's small, and yet it has had a great impact because of free enterprise and freedom, and they go hand in hand. So we have to take a close look at Antifa. We have to think about what it is that they want to do to our, our, uh, our democracy. And we have to think about how we can counter this. And it may be that the only way is to declare Antifa as a terrorist group. I'm talking about Antifa, the anti-fascist group, which was started back at the uh, beginning of the last century in reaction to uh, the rise of fascism in Europe, and uh, this has morphed into back into the United States as a terrorist group, and I don't mind using that word, and it has been fanned by our president, not, not intentionally, but by his rhetoric of being uh, pro-free enterprise and anti-open uh, uh, borders and a lot of other things that the the communists don't believe in because they think that they should just gobble up the world and and then there will be a small party of communistos that will run the country like Castro and Stalin and these other mass murderers, Mao. 
We don't need that. We're way past that. <clears throat> By the way, I got a couple of questions, and you can answer and get a mug. I'm at 877-969-8600, 877-969-8600. I probably gave some of the answers away, but I want to know, and these are three separate questions, who were the fascist leaders of Spain, Italy, and Germany during uh, World War II? Spain, Italy, and Germany. Who were the fascist dictators there? Give me a call and get yourself a mug. I'm at 877-969-8600. That's 877-969-8600. We're talking about fascism and the reaction to it by Antifa, which is the communist side of the coin. And you're with Dr. Bill. We're having a great show today. I'm having a lot of fun. We got three minutes left, so you better hurry and call. All right, so what is fascism? Well, it's a dictatorial form of government. It's a single-party system. And as I said, it does allow free enterprise, but free enterprise that the state wants, that the party wants. And so we will uh, say we don't want that. We want a multi-party or two-party system. We want to be able to speak our mind. And what is Antifa? Antifa is composed largely of communists, of people who, uh, and anarchists who have been causing problems in the world for the past 150 years. And remember, it was the anarchist communists that, that blew up a bomb on Wall Street at the turn of the last century. Uh, it was an anarchist who killed President McKinley. And so we've got a lot of, uh, a lot of history here of the Antifa-type people causing problems in our country off and on over the past 100 years, 120 years now. And uh, so we're going to do our best to keep these folks out of our society. And I, again, encourage the president to declare these people as a terrorist group. Let's get them out of society, round them up, lock them up. I have no problem. Now, I don't agree with much of what Hitler said and did, but getting rid of the communists, I'm all for that. That does not hurt my feelings. I can't think of anything more egregious and, and the antithesis of our way of life than the communist philosophy. So, come on, Tim, give me an answer, buddy. I'm going to guess Spain, sir. I'm sorry? Reggie, uh, Spain for the uh, fastest growing communist country. The uh, I thought Italy at first, but then they're too spaced out. But then Spain, they had uh, uh, just smaller and the best opportunity. And who who was the uh, who was the dictator in Spain during World War II? One of Franco. You got it, man, and you got yourself a mug. So stay on the line and give Joe your name and address, and I'll get the girls to send you out a mug this week. They're beautiful mugs. I appreciate it. Oh, I enjoy your show too. Well, and I enjoy you guys. I appreciate you guys being with me. I love everybody, and it's just a real thrill. And I'm happy that Joe's with me today too. And we're getting close to the end of the show. Uh, again, I want to put in a plug for Richmond, Virginia, if you get a chance to travel there. And also a plug for the Scandinavian world. So I want to take that cruise. We'll see if we can get something organized at some point. And we will see you guys next week. Joe, I look forward to working with you next week, buddy. Love you. And my hello to Bill. I'm out of here, man. <laughs> 